Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Ray, and welcome to the RayWentworth.com podcast. In this podcast, we'll keep you up to date with the latest app development tech talk. And here are your hosts, Drew and Janie. Thanks, Ray. This is the Ray Wenderlich Podcast. Welcome to Episode 9 for Season 7. As always, I am Janie Clayton with my awesome co-host, Drew Freeman. Hello. This episode was recorded on Thursday, December 28th, 2017. Hence the last episode of the year for us to record. Huzzah! Yay! This episode is sponsored by Rollbar. A very special thank you to them for sponsoring the Ray Wenderlich Podcast. On this episode, we have Mark Dalrymple, the awesomest mother pugger that exists on the planet. He works for Bigger Ranch and is the author of a lot of really awesome iOS books from back in the before time, before Swift and all that other stuff happened to have come about. And later on, we are going to have a post-holiday nerd off where we talk about a bunch of technology that existed before a lot of you were born. Welcome, Mark. Thanks for having me. It's good to have you back, Mark. It's a sad thing that this is a podcast because when we record it, we do have Skype so we can see each other, give ourselves visual cues. And Mark just held up the most beautiful seal point Siamese cat that I have seen in a long time. Yes, that's Bob. And yes, I I knew it was seal point. That that's the scary point. Well, actually, technically, Bob is a snowshoe, Ooh. which is a Siamese domestic hybrid. So he kind of has a Siamese voice, but he's actually cuddly. He's huge, but very friendly. So you can already see where this post-holiday episode is going to be going today. Cats. This is uh, going to be a little more laid back than our usual show. We'll, we'll definitely hit some tech here, but but it's really just uh, to let everybody unwind and, and recover from the holidays. So, Mark, you... you I. I want to tell you that after the show you did with us, I, I had a lot of colleagues who listened to the show and even at my office come up and say that they absolutely loved the, uh, the, the problem-solving system. You know, we often do a lot of iOS, a lot of Apple-based technology, but I had a lot of people who do uh, Java, Android, etc., and they just, they loved it and, and they looked it up and they've been following it as well. So I really want to go back and thank you for that show. If you haven't heard that show, definitely go back in our history and take a look at that one. That's the nice thing about the universal troubleshooting process is that it is actually universal. Unlike the universal translator. <laughs> or universal studios. <laughs> <laughs> and we're off and running. <laughs> All right, so you're going to actually, you're going you're gonna to give us a little bit of tech. So where, where are we going to go with debugging from where we left off last time? How about we talk about questions? Okay, so um, the thing which kind of started the pre-podcast recording nerd off was I was asking Drew if he knew about the original Inside Macintosh phone book edition. That was the original Macintosh technical documentation back in 1983 and 1984, and it included a section entitled Everything You Know Is Wrong. It was aimed at the Apple II programmers, the PC programmers, where you owned the keyboard, you owned the screen, you had total control over the machine. The Macintosh turned that upside down by basically feeding you events, which then you handled. So they needed, Apple needed to make sure that everybody who programmed the Mac knew that this was a different way of programming. And that phrase has really stuck in my brain. Everything you know is wrong, <laughs> especially when it comes to when it comes to uh, debugging. Because, okay, maybe not everything you know is wrong, but if you have a bug in your program that you haven't found yet, then your mental model must be wrong somewhere. As they said on Babylon 5, there is a hole in your mind. So if your mental model were totally correct, you'd either not have a bug at all 
or you'd know exactly what it is. Well, I always like the phrase that if you write the most clever code that you absolutely can, then by definition, you are not qualified to fix it because the problem is smarter than you. <laughs> so it's deep thought. Yeah. <laughs> 42. So like... I, I I think that's you're talking about like, like thinking about debugging and, and stuff because like I I always get people who say to me like well did you run your code before you went home for the day and it's like no I I don't want to run my code before I go home for the day because when I finish working on what I think I've been doing it exists in this nice perfect space where the real world hasn't intruded on it and I don't find out all the things that I did wrong and I I like I like reveling in that that nice you know like like safe <laughs> place until I come in the next day and then I have to deal with the the reality of the fact that I am not perfect. And that life sucks. Heisen code. <laughs> as long as I don't run it, then it, it isn't broken. It has neither been run nor has it crashed. <laughs> it exists in all states simultaneously. Boy, it has not been observed. <laughs> That'd be really cool if your code were in all states simultaneously and you got paid by got paid by a line of code. Just think of how much money you'd have. So the <laughs> 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 so everything you know is is wrong. Um, that's kind of the the mental model I take when I start uh, uh, tracking down bugs. It kind of dovetails into asking questions, describing your bugs. Keep things simple, simple. So you've got a program bug. You're trying to figure out what's going on, and you're not quite getting it. Or you're about to go and ask somebody else for help. You'll want to do some things. First, you're going to phrase the problem as simply as possible. You don't want to try to preform any conclusions. Just basically enumerate what's wrong and what would make things right. It's very similar to, to the universal problem solving, the, the stepping away. But can you frame it for me so I can see, you know, something. Give me a something that has happened and how to mentally put yourself as the step away and evaluate. Okay. So I've got a couple of what I call um, Hey Mark D scenarios. What usually happens is a coworker goes, Hey Mark D, I have this weird problem. Can you help me out with it? And then they describe the problem and then I ask a couple questions and we try to figure out what's going on. The thing which I see happening most often is my colleague is jumping to conclusions. Somebody, uh, like I got asked a question, Hey Mark D, can you help me figure out some arc memory management issues with some sprite kit sprites? It sounds okay. It sounds kind of interesting. So they're asking you to f they're they're asking you to help solve their their presumed solution rather than what's going wrong. Exactly. So my question back is, what makes you think you have memory management issues? And they say, oh, my sprites are just white triangles. See, I, I feel like like w when I try to debug stuff, I feel almost like I'm using a divining rod where it's like I think that the problem's over here. It's never over there, but like like it's just it's like you know like the the you know like the the Karnak you know like envelope against the forehead is telling me look over here. Right. So, like, the best problem statements is, like, when I'm starting to debug something, you know, particularly, like, through the universal troubleshooting process or just, hey, I have this bug, is I like to come up with a problem statement before I even crack open the debugger. Basically, something that's concise and actionable and measurable. So basically, I want to have victory conditions. In the case of the arc and sprites thing, it's my victory condition is I can actually get my sprites on the screen. I don't know if it's like an arc issue. It actually turned out to be a pre-release version of sprite kit issue. So arc wasn't even involved uh, at all. Well, the interesting thing there is, and to, to throw around a nice heavy term, I really do find in a lot of these cases, 
Occam's razor. If you're sitting there and it's like, could it be the complex, multi-phasic memory management, or could it be the beta release of Foo? It's like, hmm. But it's never lupus. No, it's never lupus. <laughs> but so, uh, but yeah, I, I've seen where it's like, well, obviously it's it's the more complex thing because obviously the more complex thing has more working parts. It's easier to screw up rather than the easier thing. You may have just done something dumb. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And also, like. Try not to get distracted. <laughs> As a coder? Yeah, it's like, hey, Mark D, can you help me? I have this problem in handling layout. Let me describe this full algorithm to you. And 20 minutes later, my eyes are glazing over. <laughs> and then, oh, yeah, it's crashing on this line. So this crash, that's the problem? Like, yeah. And it turned out the crash had absolutely nothing to do with this algorithm that I spent 20 minutes glazing my eyes over. It was like a, a print statement or something. So, like, the problem statement would have been, I run the program, it crashes. My victory condition, it no longer crashes. Okay, then we can get the debugger out and see where it crashes and then work backwards from there. So, I'm very much action-oriented. I'm not terribly interested how you get to the point of failure. It's take me to the point of failure, show me what's wrong, and then we can kind of like eat our way from the inside out to try to figure out what's going on. That, that, that reminds me very much of like when I used to work in a call center where like people, like most of, like I'd say like like 75% of my uh, questions were somebody needed their password reset. So you pick up the phone, hi, how can I help you? See, here's the thing. I had, you know, went through a flood. I went, you know, I had to go rescue my dog. You know, like the, the, the apocalypse happened. I had to fight off the four horsemen. And like, to make a long story short, I can't remember my password. <laughs> like, just, just, just cut problem. You like, I, 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 I try to make like a mental, like, you know, commitment to myself of being able to to condense. If I can't condense down my problem into ten words, then I don't understand the problem. Let me just ask you this. I, I really do appreciate the idea of find me the problem and let's focus on that. But do you run the risk then of solving the problem in what can only be defined as kludging the system? Because while you find where the problem is and you fix that, you aren't necessarily causing what gets you to that problem in some cases. Uh, but it gives you a lot of information. So I forget exactly what step it is on the immersal troubleshooting process, but it is narrowed down to the root cause. So the narrowing down to the root cause, I like to come from inside out rather than outside in. Then once you have like your claws into the problem, then you can figure out, okay, we're crashing here in this line because we have somebody's trying to stick a nil into a Objective C foundation object. How did this nil get here? Then you can start tracing the data back where the day where that nil came from, where it filtered, where it filtered through. So okay, the action really is a great help there because it's like okay, so you know I'm not going to cloud the issue with so many other things that could distract me. It's like it's and I've been truly guilty of the fact of there's something we're something not right here. I know now's the time to refactor and cover all of my technical debt. And maybe in doing that, the problem will somehow magically get fixed along with it in the wash. Squirrel! And yes, <laughs> that is wrong. That is so immensely wrong, but I've done it. I know at least one other listener of this show has done it when I listen to it. So one of the reasons for getting these actionable statements is applying the scientific method, the thing that we learned in high school, hopefully, and remembered. No, first, everything you know is wrong, so if it's obvious, you wouldn't have had to go to someone else for help. 
for instance. Um, and the nice thing about the scientific method, it's a lot like the universal troubleshooting process. It is a step-by-step -step process that you can use to just gnaw on a problem until it goes away. And pretty much it's, you ask a question, like, why am I crashing here? Construct a hypothesis. I've got this nil value that has bubbled through. Okay, test this hypothesis. Put a breakpoint here and look at this value. Oh, yeah, sure enough, it's nil. Okay, analyze the data. Now we've got this nil coming in from somewhere. Okay, ask another question. Okay, where is this nil coming from? The hypothesis is it's coming from a core data stack that got corrupted by hamsters or something. <laughs> and then you kind of keep on going through this process, you know, construct a hypothesis, run a test or two or 12. And by having the measurable victory conditions, you know basically when to stop. And the same thing works, especially for performance tuning, because performance tuning, as far as I'm concerned, is just a subset of debugging. And having victory conditions is very important there so that you get your animation to 60 frames a second. And that's great. And you don't spend three months getting it to 300 frames a second, which for most uses would be not a good use of your time. Yeah, we, we could obviously do an entire show on performance tuning. But again, I really, you are hitting on the major issue there, which is the smaller you create your, your set of, of variables, the, the, the smaller you can reduce it down to that one condition, the more accurate your progress is. Because especially in performance tuning, you really want to say, well, what is the one thing I'm changing so I can see exactly what that change's effect is? Exactly. It is by will alone I set my mind in motion. Let, let's take a look at how you locate these things when it's not as obvious, not necessarily a crash, but a misbehavior. So you can't necessarily pinpoint the errant behavior on everything stop here. Obviously, in rendering issues, you can say, well, when does it draw? Do you have in, in general things like this kind of thing? You, you know, you're going to look here, etc. Yeah. So one of my other Haymark D stories is one that I worked on with the colleague. We were doing a uh, scheduling calendaring application. And the problem was on Wi-Fi, we could delete a meeting from the calendar and on 3G, we couldn't. So you can kind of tell when this was happening in the mists of time. We have a networking problem, but I can't figure it out. So that was the, the Haymark D question. So it's like, well, what about networking do you think is broken? Well, printing the data, so doing some caveman debugging, it's the same in both cases, but it's different behavior on 3G and Wi-Fi, therefore it is a networking issue. So there's a kind of a leap of logic. And so peeling back that layer of stuff, it's like, let's not think about networking quite yet because it's hard. Let's do simpler stuff. It was already some caveman debugging in there, printing out basically the requests that were going back and forth. And we were saying, hey, we are making actually as a pair of requests and getting a pair of responses back. So in that case, it was what is different about these two. We looked at the actual trace of data and discovered that on 3G, we are getting the responses back in a different order. Mm. So on Wi-Fi, we had one request go out, the second go out, the first come back, the second come back. And on 3G, first went out, second went out, second came back, first came back. And we didn't handle that case. So in that case, it was putting in some tracing, whether it's uh, caveman debugging, uh, some kind of logging, to get a feel for the flow of data because we were lucky to have it works in this situation, it doesn't work in this situation. Let's figure out what is different between those two. All right, Mark, where do we go next? Rubber ducking. Rubber ducking. Um, also known as explaining things to a teddy bear. 
So you've got a problem. This has all happened to us before. We've got this problem. We're going to post to, say, Stack Overflow or developer forum or something. And it's like, I have no idea what's going on. I have this problem. I'm typing out this post. And then before you realize it, it's like, oh, I know what's going on. Or even worse, somebody comes into your office. You're sitting in your chair. They go up to your whiteboard. They start talking at you like, hey, Mark T, I've got this problem. They start erasing your whiteboard and all of the good stuff you had on there. You can just see the life draining out of your own eyes. And they start drawing <laughs> lines and circles. It's like, I've got this problem. i got this server over here talking to this, this database over here. And I'm having this data going over back and forth. And it's not working. It's like, oh, but it sounds like we're not using the uh, subarticulated Marklar over here. Oh, thanks, Mark T. This is amazing. You solved my problem. Thanks. Bye. Yeah. And I didn't say anything. <laughs> you just watched all your notes go away. Yeah, I, I watched my whiteboard getting destroyed. But just the act of explaining something to take it from this chaotic mass of electricity in the meat in your head and then organizing it into some kind of utterance, whether it's email, a posting, or you're talking to somebody in front of their empty whiteboard. So instead of wasting somebody's time, you can talk to a rubber duck or if you have like a i've got a rubber rat on my speaker over there that i can talk to or talk to the cat talk to a teddy bear and just the act of explaining your problem to the rubber duck may be enough to crystallize in your brain what you need to do i tried i tried to use an eliza bot for rubber ducking and that did not go well (laughs) i had an existential crisis but why would you say it wasn't working well We were talking about her problem, not you. What makes you think I have a problem? We will put Eliza in the show notes, and that will help a lot for many people. There was somebody who actually piped Eliza to uh, another. Uh, Eliza being a, a, a one of the first Turing disaster automated response clients. Somebody piped uh, the random Zippy the Pinhead quotes to Eliza, and the uh, the actual Unix game was called Analyze Pinhead. <laughs> And uh, I remember it blew out some university system just because it used so much going back and forth. But, um, oh, yeah, I, the number of problems that I've solved by going, so here's what's not working. And I, and I turned to somebody and I, I've explained it to I've explained it to my to my kid. I've explained it to coworkers, to my wife, just just going. So here's this and here's that. And right there, that's where I'm not doing what I'm supposed to be doing. Thank you much for playing. I'll be back later. <laughs> Well, the rubber ducking thing is actually I use that to great extent when I'm tracking down really hard problems. I was hoping I could put my hands on a notebook to show you over here on Skype. But when I give my talk on debugging, I've got a photograph of a notebook, handwritten notebook from 1997, where I'm basically rubber ducking with myself about some web server performance issues I was tracking around. These days, I use a voodoo pad, and there's a conversation going on there between two of the voices in my head. One of them is asking questions, so kind of like helping narrow down the problem, and the other voice is elaborating. Well, thanks a lot, Mark. That like I, I always like being able to talk to people about things beyond like the weird little nitty gritty aspects of tech. You know, like you know, whether you use like a struct or a class, or whether or not monads or applicative functors. It's nice to, to actually kind of like you know take some time to think about the fact that like all of programming programming is just a tool that you use to solve problems, and that you have other non technical like non code thing tools that help you go and figure out how to solve your problems. And I think that's really important for us as a community to remember while we're, you know, obsessing about like the next version of whatever Swift thing is going to be released in the next couple of months. So thank you. This was really, this was awesome. 
The Ray Wenderlich.com podcast will be right back. But first, a message from our sponsor. I want to take a moment to tell you about the sponsor of today's episode. I'm really excited about this. It's Rollbar. One of the frustrating things we all deal with is errors. Relying on users to report the errors, searching through log files, trying to debug the issues. It's a waste of time. With Rollbar, you will instantly know what's broken and why. You'll reduce time wasted debugging, automatically capture errors across your entire stack, and that includes mobile. Rollbar detects when code breaks in real time and provides the full stack trace and diagnostic data to help you defeat those impactful app errors. You can integrate Rollbar into your existing workflow. You can send error alerts to Slack or HipChat, automatically create new issues with Jira, Pivotal Tracker, Trello. Adding the Rollbar iOS or Android SDK is as easy as adding a few lines of code, and you can start monitoring crash reports in minutes. We have a special offer for our listeners. Go to rollbar.com slash Wenderlich, sign up, you'll get the bootstrap plan for Now, it's loved by developers at awesome companies like Heroku, Twilio, Kayak, Zendesk, Twitch, so many more. Give Rollbar a try today. Go to rollbar.com slash Wenderlich. And we thank Rollbar for sponsoring this episode of the Ray Wenderlich podcast. Kicking off part two, Drew and Mark will give us a dramatic reading from the book of Applesoft. We read from the book of Applesoft, book one, page 41, poke, immediate and deferred. Read, Brother Mark. Poke. Expression one. Expression two. Poke stores an 8-bit quantity, the binary equivalent of the decimal value expression two, into the location whose address is given by expression one. The range of expression two must be from zero through 255, semicolon. That of expression one must be from negative 65,535, through positive 65,535. Reels are converted to integers before execution. Out-of-range values cause the message, illegal quantity error, to be printed. Amen. Now, now my brother, you, you, you've forgotten question mark illegal quantity error because in the olden days we had to say that the computer was puzzled with a question mark and then explain what was puzzling to the computer yeah well welcome to the second half of this show <laughs> we, we wanted to, to lay back for the for the second half of this show because it, it's it's been a good holiday season and we all got a lot of wonderful gifts this year in the form of code and os's and new programming things but uh, as as we were getting ready for the show we were asking each other as, as Mark mentioned in the first half of the show about the, the, the Apple programming manual, at which point, because Mark's uh, recording studio is in his office and my recording studio is in my office with the bookshelves, we began a war to see who could pull the older book. And, and it began with the, the Macintosh programming guides. And I pulled the original Rhapsody guide, which was the uh, birth child name of Mac OS X. And while I was pulling it, I said, you know, this could be bad. And I also pulled the same book that Mark did, which was the original Apple II, AppleSoft Manual. I will try to remember to at least put a photograph of this book in the show notes. And, and we decided that that it would be nice to to talk about the, the, the long and wonderful history that is being somebody who's programmed on the Apple platform. Mark, uh, as we've mentioned, is is... Are you the founder or one of the founders of Cocoa Heads? I'm a co-founder. There are two of us who started the Pittsburgh chapter, and then it kind of exploded from there. So Pittsburgh was the first chapter, and now it's it's international. 
That is correct, much to my amazement. Well, I mean, I mean, when you program for a platform where in the 90s people would walk up to you and say, didn't they go bankrupt? <laughs> didn't they get bought by Sun Microsystems? Oh. Beleaguered. So we figured it would be nice to, to talk about the, the story. We will coding of days past, coding of days present, and, and what would have happened had we not changed our ways for codings of days future. <laughs> I kept waiting for one of you to come from the basement with a giant stack of punch cards. Have, have you punched cards, Mark? No, actually, I... I came onto the scene after punch cards were in their decline. I only punched a card once because it was a side assignment for a Fortran class I took. Um, Fortran was a language that required, well, well, came from punching cards because the actual lining up of certain commands and certain variables had to be in certain columns. Yeah, the continuation character in column seven. But let, let's just, let, let's not rock back quite <laughs> that far. Let, let's talk about, about Apple because, you know, as we deal with Swift and its growing language and we came out of Objective-C, which in itself... Uh, was birthed out of, of Next. Did you ever get to work on a, on a Next system? At my first job, we had a couple Next cubes in the corner, and they were mainly used as print servers. So it was a rite of passage that somebody would go, oh, cool, a Next system, work through the tutorial, which was basically early Coco, and then, okay, that was cool, I need to get back to work. I was lucky. I, <laughs> I was lucky enough in the 1990s to uh, to be a groupie pariah hanger-on over at Carnegie Mellon University. Uh, there were a couple of Next Cubes over at Carnegie Mellon, so I got to uh, to really... I, I, I got to see the dock and the, and the mail program as it was back then, and oddly enough, really hasn't changed a whole hell of a lot. I, I, I have to say that, of all things, that came from Next, the dock really has not changed much at all. And the mail app really hasn't changed very much at all. Well, I was just watching a video of uh, Steve Jobs demonstrating Interface Builder for the Next Cube, and it looks very similar to the Interface Builder in Xcode. Xcode has not significantly changed in 20 years. No, uh, I, honestly, Xcode itself really was just taking uh, Project Builder PB and interface builder IB and pretty much uh, unifying them and cleaning them up and in a sort of uh, at that time I think they were also trying to uh, to take a lot of notice away from Code Warrior which was pretty much the the Apple development platform at that point or, or the Apple platform IDE was pretty much Code Warrior um, a couple of people were still using Semantics Think if I remember correctly yeah Think C and also the good old MPW oh yeah well MPW I think predated Code Warrior. I think Code Warrior really came onto the scene when when MPW stopped getting the love it had. I find it interesting that you guys are talking about like doing next development because um, whenever we look, I look at like you know biographies of Apple or Steve Jobs or whatever. They basically kind of gloss over all of the time between when Apple when when Steve Jobs left Apple and when he came back to Apple. I read this really great uh, book on Apple. It was written I think in 1998 when like everybody was convinced that Apple had basically been a failed company, and so it basically went over a litany of all of the failures that the, the company made between when Steve Jobs left and when um, Gil Emilio was the le was uh, the last Gil Emilio, yeah. When, when, he, when he was the last CEO before they brought in Jobs and like, I think it's interesting that now that we know that Apple has survived and thrived after he came back, that everybody kind of glosses over that time, like, oh yeah, the, you know, those, that was the lost time, you know, like, we don't even know who these these people were who <laughs> were CEO of the company. It was just like, like it's, it's you. <laughs> I'll tell you, the people who had investments in Apple, they remember who the CEOs were back then as they burned red. 
<laughs> well, well, the biographies, the the bio, biographic films of Steve Jobs that came out, none of them really were were fair or completely equitable. I did like the spin on the Fassbender film that suggested that next really was Steve always trying to figure out and design what was needed to fix what was wrong inside Apple. Um, I, I sort of like that. I don't really know if that's theory, if that was dramatization, but it in its own way is is believable to take a look at what was next and how it came in to what was the Mac OS and a lot of words that we throw around now that people have no idea, but the, the failed Copeland project. <laughs> Mac OS ten well, now Mac OS, being sitting on top of a Unix subsystem and the, the kernel and everything else really did fix what was a, a truly frightening OS back in a, as late as the 90s. This was an OS that went several revs and still was a single user system. Well, I, was, I thought it was interesting in, in in the book. It was talking about how, like, for like I don't know, like like a decade or so, like Apple kept talking about how they needed to go in and rewrite the operating system because the it, the like the classic operating system didn't use object oriented programming. Oh no 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 so, <laughs> no the original the, the original <laughs> Mac OS development. You really you you were responsible for the event loop. You were responsible for saying, okay, what do I do when the keyboard has an event or a disc has an event or a click event and you had to basically say okay this is the state I am in now you you were creating the state machine and the loop and object really wasn't there there was an object oriented Pascal and going back to code warrior power plant power plant power plant was a set of object class wrappers around the Pascal API calls to draw a window you, you and there was a basic IB style almost XML-ish type language for setting up how your views hierarchy live. It was a it was an experience. Well, it's just, it's just interesting to me that like basically like the, the the Mac Classic operating system it just basically like like died under the load of its own technical debt that they knew that like they needed to rewrite it in something else, but like it worked good enough and it just kept getting harder and harder to do more stuff and they just couldn't get around to actually like fixing the technical debt until it finally collapsed in on itself and they had to bring in something else. <laughs> Have you ever seen Andy Hertzfeld's um, uh, Folklore.org? No. I am familiar with it. Oh, uh, Drew, you have to read it. Scrape out two days and read it. It is stories from the <laughs> development of the original Macintosh, including mm -hmm. like where a lot of the design decisions come from. I think you could also buy Fire in the Valley from uh, the Pragmatic Programmers. It's, it's more fun online because it, it has cross-references of <laughs> like uh, the characters involved. Like, okay, this particular story has Andy Hertzfeld, um, Steve Jobs, and... Um, Oh, the guy who wrote Hypercard and, and Quick Draw. Oh, a moment of silence for Hypercard. Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. So you can say, oh, that's kind of a cool story. What are other Quick Draw-related stories? And this is, and, and this was the time of them... Uh uh, the 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 young Mac team raising the pirate flag over the the burgeoning Apple team, and because there was just so much of that pirate attitude, that was also during the times where you would go through the Mac OS looking for the Easter eggs that were thrown in, and some of the Easter eggs that were thrown into the old Mac OS were absolutely outstanding. One was I I remember a, a mirror. Uh, with a flag of the team on it, and you could actually drag the flag, and, and the animation quality, considering the time period, because this was about 94, 
94, 93, to have that kind of a really open GL-ish style shading of the picture. I think it was to show off the uh, the new PowerPC machines. But yes, you are absolutely right. I, 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 I didn't think of it that way, but it really was uh, an OS that was, was crumbling under its technical debt. Um, you know, symmetric multiprocessing. It, it had no protected memory. One of the big pushes that I remember Steve pushing uh, during the presentation of, of Rhapsody pre-OS 10 was that we would no longer see the bomb uh, dialogue that would come up. If you had an application crash, a dialogue would come out saying, this application is crashed, you need to restart your computer. Because one app took down the entire system. Programming, if you had a single pointer error, it would usually bring down your system. You'd have to reboot. If you're lucky, if you weren't lucky, it would wander off into the sound buffer and your little Mac would start screaming at you. <laughs> On the flip side of that, there was a, a wonderful conference back then called Mac Hack. Mac Hack. Because the way that these Pascal calls went was that you were effectively pushing registers in and then you were calling effectively what was known as an A-trap, which was you were firing off a location in memory that would then run the sub-function. And the way you hacked it was you basically said, I know, A436, as an example, <laughs> draws a window, and I know what's coming in. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to put in A436, go call my code, and then you would pull what A436 typically called, you would process it, you would run your own code, possibly mutilating those registers, <laughs> and then you'd go call draw a window. And that was the A-trap hacking of the old old Macintosh. And the best example from, from MacHack, I, I will always remember, is they had two categories, adults and what they referred to as utes. And the utes were the kids who were doing their own thing. And one 14-year-old girl had hacked the text, write a bunch of text on the screen, that whenever any text was going to be written to the screen, she alphabetized it. <laughs> but the thing is, since she hacked it on the A level, which is system-wide, Anything that wrote on the screen was alphabetized. So you looked at the screen, the menu names were alphabetized. So file was now E-F-I-L, and edit was D-E-I-T. And we're sitting there, and we're looking at what this 14-year-old girl pulled off, and I looked up, and in the audience I said, the clock, the digital clock is alphabetizing every second. <laughs> the six-digit hour-minute second had come out as like 001121 colon colon, and every second a new number would come up that was the out because she had hacked the OS. Obviously, we cannot do that as well. I guess now we have swizzling. Uh, and a mock inject yeah. back in the early OS 10 days. In early OS 10 days. I don't know if you can get away with that stuff these days. Back in my day. Well, you can get away with it. You won't get it through the Apple store. Uh, I would have gotten away with it, too, if it weren't for those gosh darn kids. Utes. <laughs> Utes. Utes. I, I suppose the only other thing that, that is a really memorable experience programming the Mac is if you do development nowadays is doing kernel extensions, and the kernel extension development now, it's 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 a bit of an experience, and it's, it's not always easy, and you can very easily mess up a kernel extension even just by getting sometimes the privileges on the extension wrong. But kernel extensions in the old Mac OS was what we used to refer to as the icon parade. And, you know, a kernel extension had an icon. Uh, uh, so extensions, which were effectively kernel extensions, were basically small 
packages like a folder or an app or anything else. So it, could ha it had an icon. And when the OS would start up, it would load each of these extensions. It actually had an, a very interesting and complex extension manager. And you would see each icon come up. And you could tell the programmers. They're the programmers today who, when you look at the menu bar, have icons all the way over. And you know that unless they're in the Finder, some of their icons are hidden. These are the same people who, in the early days of the Macintosh, their Mac would start up and the screen would just fill with picture after picture, everything from theme changes to font suitcases. Suitcase, yes. Knew I'd get you on that one, Mark. Oh, good old init resources. Mm -hmm. Oh, and F keys. Yeah, so folks sometimes may wonder, why does Command-Shift-3, of all things, take a screenshot? <laughs> <laughs> it's because back in the early 128K Mac days, there were these little loadable code resources called F keys, and you could bind them to command shift and some number. Command shift one would eject the internal floppy drive. Command shift two would eject the external floppy drive. <laughs> and command shift three would take a screenshot. Mm -hmm. Now the finest, the finest extension that I think was ever written for the Mac, and I'm going to bet that Mark had this, was called Oscar. Because the garbage can that sat there, when you emptied trash, the can would animate, the lid would lift up Oscar would come up and there would be a sample of him singing, I love trash. I love trash. <laughs> and then it would close and stop. And then if you emptied trash a second time, it would open again. And the next sample would be, I love it because it's trash. And it would close again. That was written by um, Eric Shapiro. And I found him on Twitter. So he's still still around doing stuff. And find out why he hasn't hacked the current garbage can. <laughs> All of the Mac programming that was Pascal, it was not... C initially. Yeah, all the calling conventions were Pascal. So when C compilers became prominent, whenever you had a callback from the Mac toolbox, you had to annotate your C function with Pascal so it would pass the arguments in the right registers. And it wasn't just the registers. Um, a major code difference, a major syntax difference, is the binary representation of strings in Pascal versus the binary representation of strings in C. Uh, most people are familiar in C that a string is basically a whole bunch of characters until you hit a null, you know, a zero byte, and that's the end of your string. With Pascal, your first byte was your length of your string, and of course, Pascal was pretty much a 255 character string because you had one byte for the length, and in converting that, you sometimes you were writing your own C to P string converter, or eventually you got a library that had a, a P to C and a C to P string. What are these registers you speak of? This sounds suspiciously like hardware architecture and assembly language. Well, they didn't really know how to abstract some of this stuff back then. They being any of us. Oh yeah, it's like you had to know like the A5 globals. Oh my god. So the A5, the A5 register in the 68,000, the Mac used that as the pointer to one direction off that pointer was quick draw stuff, and then the other direction were other system globals. Yeah, and you had to request it to to make sure that you were throwing commands at the right thing. And sometimes you had to like, yeah, you had to like save and restore the A5 depending on if you were called at interrupt time. Wow, there's just a lot of aspects of this that I never had to, to deal with. Like I, I've used Apple II computers and Mac computers. I've never owned a, a you know, non-Apple computer in my entire life, and just I didn't realize how intensive all of this different stuff was that you guys had to deal with back in the old days of working before we had you know Objective C and Swift. That thing. 
thank you both so much for sharing all of your stories with me and with all of our listeners about what that was like to you know be working back in the old in you know the previous days. Oh, it's a lot of fun to talk about. And once again, thank you so much to Rollbar for sponsoring this episode of the Ray Wonderlick Podcast. Uh, thanks to all of our listeners. Thanks for listening. And back to you, Ray. And that's a wrap. Thanks again, everybody, for listening to the RayWenderlich.com podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. And don't forget to leave a rating on iTunes. See you next time.